Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Human Voice. I have a new friend with me today. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. The Human Voice on the other side of my microphone is Mr. Earl Hamilton. Earl lives in West Palm Beach, where he's the COO of the National Center for Faith-Based Initiatives. He's worked in the nonprofit sector, the finance sector, and in the corporate op- in corporate operations, and we're going to learn more about his background. But I've gotten to know Earl just the last few months. He's a new friend. And what I have appreciated about him is his openness to seeing things from many perspectives. And as you know, that's really important to me. It's what we try to do on this podcast. And uh, we're going to talk about why and how and the value that he sees in that. So, Earl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. Great to, uh, great to be here. Great to uh, greet your audience on it, too. Yeah, absolutely. You're down in my old neck of the woods. We have a lot in common. One of those is I grew up in South Florida and spent a lot of time in Miami and West Palm Beach and still have relatives down there. So I'm going to start envying you this time of year because it's starting to get cold up here in Tennessee. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And cold, you know, cold is always relative because I grew up in Chicago originally. So coming down to Florida for the whole bipolar piece and stuff like that, yeah, I'll take these things. <laughs> just, just a wee bit better, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. I'm happy to switch those. Happy to switch those with you. <laughs> well, you know, once you once you grow up in the tropics, it, you never get it out of your blood. So if it gets too warm for you, we can certainly switch places. So I'll take it any day. <laughs> I, will I will definitely let you know, Bob. Definitely let you know. <laughs> So Earl, we've we've gotten to know each other fairly well in the last few months working on some projects together, but I don't I would say I don't know much about your your background, your growing up, you know, the Earl Hamilton story saga as it were. So I, I want to start there if you don't mind. Tell me about your childhood and your upbringing. Sure. I was the I grew up in uh, South Side of Chicago, fairly rough, I would say fairly rough neighborhoods on the South Side of Chicago. I was born to two parents. I am Earl, supposedly Earl Jr. Two parents who have been married now for almost 75 years, and I'm the youngest of three brothers. 75 years? Yeah, they've been married. How, old, how, how old are they? My dad just turned 90 and my mom is 87. Wow. I'm, I'm sorry, oh, 65 years, 65 years. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I was starting to do that. <laughs> yeah, they got married pretty good. They've married 65 years. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Still, that's that's huge. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I grew up in the South Side of Chicago. I would I would consider to be a typical upbringing, but it's amazing when I talk about, you know, when you, when you meet new people, you kind of talk about your experiences, you kind of realize how aberrant your experiences are, how diverse they were. But uh, yeah, rough neighborhood. I grew up, I was a part of an interesting pilot program. And I think this kind of goes to a little bit of kind of critical thinking and, and kind of my worldview. I was at a very young age in elementary school. I was a part of this pilot program that was designed to take um, kids from the inner city and who were considered the at-risk kids there from everything from drugs and gang violence, and then uh, put them in, in, edu- in a different educational scenario. So I was actually bussed out to uh, a fairly affluent um, suburb of Chicago called Western Springs. And so I went to a school called St. John of the Cross from, I think, fourth grade all the way through my graduation, graduating mm. time in eighth grade there. And it was it was really it was a it was a really interesting experience as I look back on it, because it's, it's a couple of things that kind of happened. First of all, I got I got a chance to see and really understand at a very early age that people live a very, very different human experience based on race and economic status. So I was going to school with kids that had a level of privilege and stuff like that, that I simply, I couldn't even fathom and couldn't even understand. 
their mm. experiences were totally different from mine. And then I would come back to my neighborhood and because I was bussed out to this rich white school. So now I still had some tension and stuff like that with my peers and all that and, and the neighborhood and also kind of walking that fine line, man, I would, I would have changed anything, but, uh, but it, it made for a really, really interesting upbringing and stuff like that. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that was a little very. It's it's a that's an interesting. You know, the more we talk, the more intersections we find we have. It could be because we're similar age, but you know, I spent about about a four and a half year stint in Alabama. We moved around a lot from first grade to about fourth grade or fifth grade, and I was actually it was the same thing but reverse. So obviously me as a as a white family i was bussed into a black neighborhood in alabama during that time and i have nothing but positive experiences you know i talk to my kids now because they study all these things in the history of the us and civil rights and so you know i'm i, I guess i'm like an og they're like well, you really you really experienced that dad i'm like yeah i did and it was great. It wasn't a negative experience. Obviously, my life experience, like you said, was very different, I'm sure, upbringing than yours. But it, I find it interesting that there's there's so many people in, in the world today that experience that on both sides of the coin. And like you, it, I think it shaped the way that, that I see things and talk to people probably more than I even realize. That, that's that's. That's pretty. That's good. That's pretty amazing because my my experience as as being an African American male and being and being bussed out to a predominantly white community that resonates and that kind of correlates with our world experience because we're always in the minority as as you know African American. We're always in the minority any you know corporately anything like. So it's not. But for you to be to come from a majority culture and then be bussed into a minority community. It's not only admirable, but man, that that's special and rare because it's, it's not often that we find that we find people that authentically come into our spheres and come into our realities and all that and bring their authentic selves to the table to kind of really learn and all that. So that's that's pretty cool, Bob. That that tells me a lot. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I, I would have I would love to tell you that it was voluntary and desired, but I think. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It yeah. it, it yeah. definitely, I, I can't take any credit other than it was something that happened. It's something that, and I do credit my parents for keeping me in public school because they could have done something different, right? But to your point, uh, it 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 probably impacts me more than I know. So, yes. so how about you? So were your siblings also in the same situation? No, no, it's no. I was the first one. I was the first one who was a part of this specific program. But my older brothers were all six years apart. So my family, my mom and dad obviously did this, this cerebral planning on how they were going to have kids. So my oldest brother's 12 years older than my next brother's brother's obviously six years older. But it, it's amazing now that when we talk about our, our varied experiences, we, it's almost like we live in three different households and three different environments. And you can kind of see the evolution of my parents' mindset as they kind of, you know, kind of grew through, you know, Kenny, Kevin, and then myself. So my mom, my mom was the center of power in the local uh, elementary school. So when kids would get in trouble, they got sent down to the front office and he got sent and they would go to the principal. But the secretary, who was my mom, was really the one who was a disciplinarian. So I grew up in a in a household in a household, you know, there were the I, I knew all these really hardened gangbangers and all these tough guys and all this other stuff and all that, but they all still they'd be as hard as they want to. When they walk down the street, it's still like, hello, Mrs. Hamilton, how you doing, Mrs. Hamilton? <laughs> 
And so I was always, so I was always, I was always amazed by that, you know, that generation that was growing up, but still had respect for my mom there. My dad was a part of this really, really strong knit, uh, knit community in my neighborhood of blue collar workers. Hmm. So my dad was a manager at Sears Automotive. He was, uh, he eventually became manager. He was always the top mechanic that was there. But in his days, they wouldn't allow, they would not allow blacks to be in manager. So I watched my father, who is uh, probably the hardest working man that I've ever seen. And I watched the network of strong men around him. You know, my neighbors were bricklayers. They were electricians. They were, you know, plumbers. No one really had, no one had a college degree. All of them were Masons. Most of them had already come out of the military and had fought in Korea or Nam and otherwise. And now we're kind of building families in this and in these uh, inner cities of our and the inner cities of Chicago, but also in our larger communities. So I, I just I just kind of watched my older brother kind of matriculate that that kind of environment. He he had a very different experience because it was his peers now that had this incredible respect for his mom. So I watched how he tried to exert himself amongst his peers as who can be the toughest guy who can, you know, or who could get into the most, most trouble. And I, and then I see my old, my middle brother, Kevin, I watched how he looked at the experience of, I looked at the experience of Kenny and tried to reshape his life and his behaviors and stuff like that. And, and see how my parents interacted with Kevin very, very differently. And then it came to me and I didn't realize I had a very, very different different interpersonal experience with my with my parents than my older brothers did. My father was very, very engaged in my life in a way that he wasn't in my in my older brother's lives because my father would have to go out. I mean, they had him working almost, you know, his transportation was two and a half hours almost going to work every day and two and a half hours back. He was working all the time. By this time, by the time my dad came to me, he was a sole contractor. He was one of the first people in the, he was the first person in our neighborhood to actually have an, to actually have a computer. Mm. So that first NEC computer that was if then statements and programming, he was the first salesperson in the black community that they, that they gave a computer mm. to, and he was tasked to kind of go off and do that. So, so I watched the hardest working man that I can from working with his hands to coming to this space now where he's, he's, you know, working with intellectual property, he's learning programming, he's learning these other things. And I watched how he try to integrate that within our community on the cutting edge of that. My background just with my parents and all that, and I'm like you, you never realize how much it really impacts you or shapes you and all, but those are just some of the, some of the real experience that I, that I kind of found from a, a pretty diverse upbringing that was different from most, I think. Mm. And then from there, did you, you went to college? What, what was your, your projected career path? What, what were you wanting? I went to Florida A&M University, which is, which is another thing. I went to a, a really good high, I went to a really good mixed high school, did pretty well in high school, not probably not the greatest, but I was actually recruited. It was interesting that Florida A&M University, which is a historically black college, was coming to Chicago and was specifically looking for not just inner city youth, but looking for inner city youth who had that diverse experience. So I went to kind of an, I wouldn't call it, it was a, a private high school. So we actually had HBCU that would actually come to a high school that was 5% black. Hmm. So they had a very, very specific niche that they were looking for. And, and, at that, and the way that they engaged me at that time was something that was really interesting. And it's, I think that, that going to an HBCU is one of the best and probably life-changing experiences that I had because I went from a fairly poor but strong middle-class, low-middle-class neighborhood to being in an environment where you, I was only around African-American, other youth from all around the country. 
And we were, it wasn't, and we were, yeah, we were some of the best of the best, but it was just the nurturing that we actually have where our teachers were African-American, where they actually instilled in us and told us about real life experiences, where I had professors, I always tell people this one, I'll, I'll be running on and on. I always had this one professor when we were in engineering and uh, we had a midterm exam that was actually coming up. And so there was, I think we had an 8, an 8 a.m. class. And there were about 20 of us that at four o'clock in the morning were still up at, inside inside the, uh, the classroom, still studying and trying to work together for this exam. And we just couldn't get it. And so we're panicking. And one of the kids actually calls our professor at four o'clock in the morning. And uh, his name was Michael Baker. Michael Baker actually got out of bed came to the came to our classroom five o'clock in the morning worked with us from five until seven seven a.m went back home got changed came back and gave us the exam and this is just the example of the 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 real investment that the teachers actually gave us and the real pride they actually gave us in, in our community and how we work together and the importance of supporting one another which which I didn't get when I went to other majority culture schools or anything like that. So that that was a major, major impact, mm. even on my psyche and how I kind of view the world even now. Mm. That's interesting, especially to go from, you know, bringing being bust into a predominantly white school, I'm assuming high school as well or no? Yeah, well, high, yeah, high school, I still went to a predominantly white parochial school. So, yeah. And then going to, as you said, historically black um, college university that that's really interesting. What was that? Was it a shock? Was it different? Was it like, Oh, this is just another perspective. How, how did you see the two different? I mean, I, I can imagine that, you know, in an educational setting going from one to the other, especially in a college environment, uh, where you've, you know, been in one all your life for the previous, what, 12 years or whatever it was, what was that like? What was that transition like for you? It was the, and I always, it was the first time in my life that I was able to breathe. Hmm. It was the first experience. See, remember, I went to a, I went to a white high school, I mean, to a white grammar school at a very, very early age. So I learned very, very early on that my linguistics, my behavior that I actually had when I was on the block and in the neighborhood or within our house was seen and perceived very, very differently when I went to this high school, when I went to grammar school. So I learned to code switch very, very early. And you'll probably hear a lot of a lot of people talking about, well, a lot of African-Americans talking about code switching. Whereas we learned, we learned the language of majority culture. We learned the language and the behaviors and we change our hairstyles. We change how we talk. We change how we walk. I had to, I, I learned how to be, a, you know, I'm a fairly big black guy. I learned how to be less intimidating. So I always had, I was always the over gleeful, you know, Barney-ish character and stuff like that to make the people around me comfortable with just my existence. And when I went to an HBCU, it was the first time that I could actually be myself, that I could actually just be authentic, to have no frames, to have no, you know, not, not worry about the lens from which I've seen, to be able to talk to people who actually had a very, very shared experience growing up and where we were, and just to be able to experience, the, the, I, I fell in love, I fell deeply more in love with just Black culture being at an HBCU, because I had the opportunity for the first time to really, to, you know, I, I came from, you know, middle-class Chicago, to have roommates who were actually from the island. I had a roommate who was actually from Jamaica, to have roommates who were from the islands, 
to have friends that were in our cohorts and stuff like that that were from Alabama and Tennessee and California. And we talked about our, our differences. And you could see the, the spectrum of differences in culture and personality and, and really, it really, but not having to code switch and not having to change yourself to be accepted. In. And it was, uh, it was the greatest experience of my life. And the, the, the interesting question is that we taught that a lot of us talk about in our alumni circles is coming outside of that bubble back into the real world. But yeah, they, they, it was it was probably one of the better experiences in my life or anything like mm -hmm. that. And, and learning to about me and learning to love me. Wow. That's a great segue, Earl, into a question that I like to ask a lot of my guests is, you know, change, transformation. What has been your two most meaningful days of your life so far? Two most meaningful days. Well, number one is obviously going to be obviously be the birth of my son, uh, and and this is not going to be an unusual experience for all proud parents. I have a son who's now twenty seven years old. His name is Devin, but his birth and maturation and and I, it's weird because you say the most meaningful day, but it's like throughout all of his upbringing, it's like every day is almost one of the most. Meaningful. Yeah, for sure. I'm a I'm a proud dad and stuff like that, and just loving my son dearly. Hmm. Other than that, that's that's actually and that's your biggest one. That's the biggest one. And I'll mm. tell you, and, and ironically enough, there, there's been several, but one is that I actually remember I was actually, I had, I had come, come out of college. I was actually a commercial banker in South Florida. I was one of the youngest commercial bankers in South Florida and was having a modicum of success. So this is in my early twenties. So I was feeling myself. I was fairly, you know, fairly, you know, probably arrogant at that time and otherwise. And I have a, I was going to a church and I have a pastor. His name is uh, Harold Ray, who was very accomplished in law and everything else. But he was actually doing this work with churches and faith-based organizations way back when he was doing work with Rick Santorum and the Clinton and uh, the Clinton administration. And so he was kind of going and he was bringing all these faith-based leaders together and was teaching them, you know, how we can, how we can actually be set up professionally. Well, what we want to call it professionally set up in such a way uh, sustainably so that we can start partnering with government. So he bought me in as one of his youngest black bankers to talk to this cohort of, you know, thousands of church leaders who were actually there. And I sat up there with the, as this, you know, this young black banker and I blasted them. I'm this 20 something year old kid. And I'm telling them about you guys have access to, you know, to all this land. You have all the potential to have all these assets. You have uh, the possibility of, you know, free, uh, free uh, human resource labor. You've got all this. And what are you doing with you had a potential to do this? And I mean, I was, oh, I was I was horrible back then. And, and he came to me after that session. He said, he said, you know, you made some pretty good points. You made some really good points and you have some valid points, he said. But. I, I, why don't we do this? If you really care about what they're doing, I, I want to beg you, I want to tell you, put, ask you to put your money where your mouth is. And I was like, sure. He was like, if you really, really believe in everything you said, come on board with me with the National Center and then let's and let's start making a real difference and really teaching people. And I was young. This is my first time going in and out of the White House. I was talking to senators and everything else. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. So this was the first time someone actually said, OK, let's let's take it from from theory, let's really put it into practice. And that put my life on a totally different path career-wise for some of the work that I was actually doing. And then also my love and understanding of faith-based organizations and their nexus kind of to inner city communities and the need. Mm, that's fascinating. I know that, that you write and post, you know, we're connected on social media and I've gotten to know you a little bit through social media. Well, and I've, my gang, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> 
And I know you write and post about a lot about seeing things from different perspectives. Why is that so important? I think especially in this day and time, and and, and not just over the past, I think that, that, you know, the past five years, even the past 13 years of our political climate, it has really, it really shown us that we've grown from a country of critical thinkers to uh, to a country of individuals that are really that are really harbored within their own individual silos. Mm. And that with everything that we do see and think, especially with the algorithm of social media, that everything around us in life is, is, is really just reaffirming our current biases. And I think I think we're at a critical point in this nation, at least, as a matter of fact, around the world, too, as, as I do some traveling and just seeing that if you're going to have a dearth of critical thinking, then we're really going to start, start having these really strong fissures of division, both culturally, economically and otherwise, that are really going to stagnate, that are really going to stagnate the country. And I think we're at a point where I, we haven't seen these type of entrenched fissures since really almost everything from prohibition, everything from slavery and everything else, like, you know, I, I think we're really at those critical times. So, and I don't have a, a huge social media following, but I have a lot of students that follow me for certain reasons. And I think it's important that we, that we not only think about things from another person's perspective, number one, uh, before we can even, even argue, or, but just having common empathy and decency and, and, and having the understanding that I don't have to agree with someone for me to value them as a human being. And also recognizing that people have a very, very, very different experience. And so I can disagree with I can disagree with your, your perspective, but I can't necessarily doubt your experience. I mean, your life and what you've actually lived in your life is, is, is what you've actually lived. And that's valid and that's authentic. And I think right now we're at a point where we're devaluing a human experience based on different perspectives. I think that's a very, very dangerous place to be interracially and, and interculturally in any wise. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. You know, your upbringing, we're able to practically experience and see things as much as you could from another perspective, right? So you were bused into a white school. Like I said, for a short period of my life, I could potentially see things as I was bused into a black school. That that gives us some lived experiences. I also lived internationally in other places of the world too. But what do you say and how do you help to, to talk to a person, let's say, who, who was brought up in a white culture all their lives or brought up in the black culture all their lives? It's really hard for them to try to see things from a different perspective, or is it? I think it, I think it depends on the person. I think that, I think that, there's more commonality in the center than what we give credit for. I think that the fringes are the ones that, that get a lot of the press and that are yeah. actually exacerbated in the media. But I have, uh, I've got a tremendous amount of who I actually call white friend, friends who are legitimate friends. I don't use that word necessarily lightly, who are generally curious about, you know, that love me as an individual and want to be able to love and support me wholly. And because of that, that lends for some very, very transparent conversations. Hmm. And if you have some people that are willing, and that's on both sides, that are willing to come in, because I, I don't fault my friends for their, for their life and their lifestyles and what they've experienced. I have, I have no fault of that, that at all. And I don't think that being pro-Black or pro-White means that you're anti-White or anti-Black. I think that we all should love and embrace our culture and have an understanding. But I love the fact you said you lived abroad, because that most times that gives people really, really open idea of how relationships are and, and, and diversity and, 
and really, you know, different foods, different settings, different peoples and different belief systems. I think the challenge comes in now where we have some that are on the fringes that want to deny one experience or the other. So I, I mean, tip. so I, I have some pretty tough conversations and stuff like that with some of my white friends and all that who, who just just don't get it, just didn't realize just didn't realize some of the things I talk. I mean, it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine, a neighbor of mine, lives right behind me the other day. And I asked him, I said, I don't want to mention this. I said, I said, let me ask you something. How comfortable? He said, do you, I asked, you like whistling? And he said, he said, yeah, yeah, I like whistling. What about it? Yeah. So I was like, so do you, do you whistle a lot? Do you whistle sometimes or anything like that? You know, he's like, yeah. I said, you have any, you have any compunction or any anxiety about whistling in public, anything like that. You're just going to whistle anywhere you want to whistle and all. And he was like, yeah, he's like, yeah. And, I, and, I, and it almost sounded like he was boarding on the ridiculous. There was a really, there was a really, really good documentary that was on last night called Civil War. And it actually buttressed this point. It's one of the first times that I've heard it outside of uh, black culture. But I said, I said, you don't understand you, what you may or may not understand is, have you ever seen a black man whistle in public? Hmm. And he's like, well, not that I can recall. I'm sure they do. I'm said. Think about the last time you heard a black man whistling in public. Most of us, most of us learned from our parents while we were very, very young kids that you can't whistle in public. Because if you whistle in public, then you may end up just like Emmett Till, where Emmett Till very simply was perceived as supposedly whistled at a white woman. And because he was with, he supposedly, and the white woman lied. Number one, he was simply whistled, but because he supposedly whistled at a white woman, he was then, they came to his house. They pulled this little young kid out of his house. They wrapped him in barbed wire. They tortured him, burned him, then threw him into the river. And his mother was the one who was actually bold enough to have an open casket. So, so these are the, the learning tools where, you know, where some people probably learn that, hey, you, you know, you walk with a young lady on the outside by the curb, you walk on the outside of her or anything like that or you'd be a gentleman or other things you do. These are some of the core foundational things that we learned as individuals growing up. And it affects our behavior later. But you not having a Black experience, know absolutely nothing about it. That's so right. for you to, but, and, and being perfectly honest, for you to deny that it's a legitimate experience is absolutely wrong. It's, it's, it, is a, it is a defilement of my humanity and my experience based on what happened. So yeah, so there's, so, so yeah, that's tough conversations. Yeah. Yeah. That's my conversation that I have, I have had and that I don't fully get. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. Meaning my, my white friends, my people that are, are not people of color. I I know sometimes you hear things like, why can't we get beyond race? Why do we have to make it about race? I'm not racist. I love everybody, but it always comes back. And the one thing that I, that I always say is, you know, race has never been an issue or a hindrance to me or to you, to the person I'm talking with. I said, but to someone that it has been a hindrance in their lived experience, is it not disrespectful and degrading to tell them to get beyond something that w could have been traumatic for them, that they always deal with, that they're always, they're always aware of in this culture? To say get beyond to get get past it and stop making it an issue, that's what I don't comprehend. To me, it feels like that's easy to see, but it's uncomfortable when you acknowledge it, I guess. I, I, I guess it brings me to my next question. Why is it so hard for people to believe that everyone 
is basically the same and that we have more in common than not. I know it kind of, we're bypassing what I just said, but I think it ties in together with it, is if, uh, if you and I basically want the same things and we want protection for our families, we want to earn a decent living, we want to feel safe in our homes, we don't want our children to die in needless ways, we want to love and be loved, all of these things are, are common to the human experience. I think it would be fairly easy then to say, okay, if this is an issue or something that's pertinent in your life that you're saying as a large group of people, even I go so far as to saying as a whole race of people that you're, that you're mourning, you're grieving something to discount it and ignore it is really to de dehumanize a whole race of people right in front of you. That's the problem that I've always had. And I don't quite understand why is it so hard for people to see that from your perspective? That, that man, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I think I think it's a layered question too, because I think that the United States is somewhat we're somewhat as an, of an aberration of what we're dealing with versus what we're actually seeing domestically. I mean, internationally with other countries who deal with similar issues, but more so in class, even than race or in tribalism. And, but in the United States, I really believe I really believe that some see this as a zero sum game. In order to recognize, first of all, I don't, I don't know about you, but even me as an individual, I don't like to look back on the, the challenges or anything, other things that I may have done wrong in the past. Hmm. So the challenges in this zero-sum game is, do I, do, I, do I embrace some things like what's being called critical race theory, which is actually an, an, a, really a theory, a theoretical concept based on the university level, and I won't jump into that too much, but do I actually take the time to look back and acknowledge the things that my people have actually done, which were absolutely wrong. Do I actually take the, do I, do I actually want this to, in doing that, what does that do to me as an individual? Because I'm a part of a revisionist history. So if, if history has always told me that I'm the good guy, if history has actually told me that Christopher Columbus came over here and really discovered America in the way it is, it's actually written, then I believe that we are, we are inherently the, the individuals that wear the right hat, the white hat, and we're, we're inherently good guys. So no, I'm not necessarily racist because I'm inherently good. But the flip side of that means that now that I have to, that, that means that I would have to believe then the, the counter narrative that says that people of color, especially African-Americans, those that were brought here that actually worked in the field for 400 years and actually created the prosperity for this country and created it to be the richest country in the, on the planet, that somehow now those people who came here and, and had that work ethic now are inherently lazy, that they're pulling on the welfare system and they, are, they, are, they are, have a higher propensity toward criminalization and drugs and otherwise. And so, and, you, and then you add on top of that a power dynamic that as as white individuals of white culture, you know, I, I control the levers of power in all the major aspects of this of this country, in politics, in industry, mm -hmm. even in religion, being perfectly honest, in, in religion, in all of the major cultural artifacts that really shape the next generation youth. I I'm the one that actually sits on top of those. So to share to share what could be perceived as power with other individuals, making them empowering, then what does that then do? What does that then, what does it, what does it mean now if I have a black president? Hmm. You know, and I think that, you know, and I was watching a documentary the other day and there's a strong, and, there, and there's, I can understand if I were on the other side of that, that there would be some inherent fear there. 
I would I, I understand the fear that's been spoken in some ways that that some people say, you know what, as white America, acknowledging what I did to black people, number one, does that anger them or what does that do to them? And let's just have them forget it. But if we were where to get them power, would they turn and do the same thing to me? Which is very, very, which is very much not what like what we actually see in, in black culture. So I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a mm. lot of layered dynamics there. But I but I think we're getting to an inflection point in this country where we're gonna have those conversations or we're gonna go in or it's or it's gonna get worse far far more before it gets better. You know, one of the things uh, I don't want to oversimplify any of these things, and we could probably talk for hours, but in my own studies, one of the things that I'm realizing more and more that the last two years has brought out is that there is a there's a stark difference between an individualistic culture and mindset and a communal culture and mind. And down to the very, again, I'm, I don't want to oversimplify this, but even when it comes to COVID and you go to some places, it's not uncommon, especially places in the Southeast and the Midwest, to see people really not wanting to participate in, in wearing masks. But usually when you see an African-American person, when you're seeing an Asian person, when you're seeing an Indian person, there's a good chance that they're wearing a mask. I remember having this conversation with one of my children and saying, you know, isn't that, it's interesting. This is not about masks, whether they're right or wrong. What I'm talking about is culturally. When you see yourself as an individual first, yeah. meaning I have rights, no one's going to tell me what to do, and I'm going to do what's best for me and my family, versus a culture that says, I need to do what is best for us. We are going to do this. We are going to do this together. It's part of that is upbringing. Part of it is, is countries and cultures. Part of it is just being a, minor, a minority where you have to stick together to survive. But I think that is interesting too, that, you know, the scale, that spectrum of individualism versus a more communal mindset. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I could I couldn't agree. I really, really couldn't agree more. But 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 it, but I find it I find it almost demographically so. Not just not just even across races of cultures. Sure. Um, when I travel through the Midwest, um, the Midwest has these wonderful, wonderful pockets of individuals who are who are naturally homogenous. You know, farmers. You know, the farmers do the same thing. They're accustomed. They're they're familiar with working on the land. They they have a tremendous amount of pride in the contributions they make to the states. I actually stayed with Quakers for about a week. The most wonderful, wonderful people I've actually ever been around. That's a whole different conversation about people who are not exposed to media, so therefore they don't have the the media predilections relative to race and differences and how right. they actually treat you and all that. And then you have and then you have individuals who are who are forced into these smaller pockets of urban well not small pockets, these larger pockets of urban dwellings where in one building you may have 5 or 6,000 people that are living there and for them to have a, a shared a shared, you know, good experience, they all have to own this building. They all have to own this experience now that actually works. So I, I see it racially, but I also see it demographically. And, and my challenge is my real challenge with this, uh, too, is I, I place a lot of heavy, if you want to call it blame or anything like that, on media mm. and uses of media and propensities and otherwise, as well as social media. Because I think that social media and media itself has, first of all, taken the data and done and really, really recognized these differences and then really kind of played on those differences, play one against another. 
Right. And I think it's been, and I think it's been happening for really the past 20 years or so, but it really has been weaponized to this degree, I think in the past eight to 12 years in a way that I haven't, I, that I hadn't seen in times past. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Regardless of where you are in that spectrum that I mentioned earlier, there is now an environment where you can congregate and find people and actually are encouraged and rewarded for finding people who think the exact same way as you and therefore to reinforce your cognitive bias of whatever it may be. I mean, it could be COVID, it could be religion, it could be politics, it could be, you know, health, medicine, it could be, it, it could be anything. It's whether you like to, to knit, you know, pink sweaters with other people, you know, and it, it, it's an interesting uh, environment where it used to be that like you said, you go talk to your neighbor over the fence. And if you wanted to have those conversations, there was a good chance that someone in your immediate sphere or neighborhood saw things differently, maybe did things differently. And if you wanted to congregate with people who believe the same way you did, you'd have to go out and find them or make an effort to, to go do that on a regular basis. Well, now you can just open your phone out of your pocket 50 times a day and have people telling you whatever it is that you believe, you can find it. And that's uh, that's that's a that's a definitely a different thing in the past eight ten years than than you said. I, I even take and I would even take that one step further because you're right. I mean, for the, it, it's beautiful to find people with like affinities and find cohorts and all that and reinforce where you are. Yeah, and you're absolutely correct. You're right. Where we used to be across. I think that this is the first time, the first time that media has been weaponized. Well, it's not the first time that media has been weaponized in a way such that. Not only am I different from you, and we can have shared differences, but now your difference now has a negative impact on me. So now I have to attack it. You are right. you are a you are a liberal arts open person who believes in LGBT. So now, based on your personal beliefs, somehow you threaten my overall value, or you threaten right. the ethos of what I believe America is or otherwise. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, re it's really not new. It's really not new. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be on this media kick a bit, especially from some of the things I've been looking and reading, uh, looking at and reading. But it's interesting that from uh, really 1945 to 1968, just to butcher this, the face of poverty at the time, whenever they did anything with media, the face of poverty was young white families who are hardworking, who are struggling to kind of move things forward. And this is why LBJ and otherwise, we had the war on poverty at that time. And we had to create constructs and all that to make sure that we're uplifting every American. It's really when the civil rights movement came into play that then the, the, the icon of what poverty is now became these African-Americans of the African-American face and now became those that are actually sitting on this welfare system. Now the face of poverty now started being painted differently. And so this was a this and this was a purposeful construct based on media yes. because it based on the civil rights movement of empowering blacks. They didn't want media wise for black, you know, empowerment like that to actually come. So what do we do? We start painting that movement differently to white American majority culture. Right. So now we, we demonize it. It's very simple. What, what happened with Black Lives Matter and otherwise not. I won't jump into my kick on that. Right. But. So I, I have, uh, I have, uh, did you ever, did you ever read or study as you were looking at that, what Frank Sinatra did in the forties? No, you know what I, you, it's funny. You're the third person actually asked me about that. I have not. No. Yeah. I'm going to probably butcher this, but 
you should go we should go back and verify it but well actually i have seen it i was watching a documentary the other night with my youngest son and we were watching this documentary about the life of frank sinatra which he's an old soul of my three kids he's you know he was born out of time and he loves that era of music he loves history and so we're watching it and frank sinatra coming up in the 30s and 40s is a very young he was the first pop star per se right like he was the first really star that this country had in that kind of sense of cultural phenomenon where, you know, girls in Bobby socks would go see him, right? Well, one of the things he did, I think it was in the mid to late 40s, I'll have to go back and check. He did a public service announcement where it was him in this setting, like he was on a, a stoop of a New York house and on a street corner. And there was all these kids of all different races and colors. And his point was, you know, we're all the same. Let's not judge. It basically an anti-prejudicial it was. Well, that was like radical because imagine a public service announcement. I don't know if it played on television or, or on movies because you had limited television at the time. Well, he was plastered for that. He was accused. He was called a communist, you know, a liberal, a, you know, a socialist. It's the same old playbook for simply saying, hey, we're a country of different people, but we're basically all the same. Let's let's be kind to one another. Let's start there. So again, it's nothing new, as you said. And that's what's surprising to me is people talk about, you know, the media and, you know, this is a, you know, it's just a lot more easily accessible now where you had four or five channels. Now you have an endless amount of billions of channels to get that information out. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It, it's it's the same old playbook. It's it's highly, but that is that is the scary thing too, because we're not educating our kids in our home the way we used to. You know, our kids are being raised up really in social media, and then whatever's being taught in the high schools. But the, you know, they're really learning their their core value. Well, they're getting the core values from us, but it, it's really being buttressed by what they're getting social media and what they're getting from their peers. Which yeah, which in this environment can be really can be really really you know really dangerous. We're not sitting around the the dining room table like we all like we used to you know our kids are plashing their phones and all of that so yeah yeah, it's, yeah yeah well this leads me to my to my last question i want to discuss with you it's one of my one of my favorites and that is do you believe that people change emotionally psychologically and spiritually over their whole lifetime and if so what have been a, been some of those shifts for you uh short answer is absolutely yes I am a huge proponent and, and, and teacher of you will grow more in your years from 18 to 27 than you than you had in your entire first scene, your first 18 years of growth from the age of 27 to 35. Your whole world is going to change more than that. So so I, I believe life experience, life experience holistically does change you with with just experiencing things. I was like, it's funny, I was just talking to my son about the stressors and stuff that he's dealing with now. I told him, you know, five years from now, that will, that'll be something you'll kind of just breeze with. I believe that for I believe that for any individual that we have an inert draw toward learning and experiencing growing. I think that the way that a baby comes out and experiences the world through senses, colors, touch and learns a new environment. I think that we we we, we keep that curiosity, although it's very much dampened when we get into our specific cultures. Spiritually, spiritually, if, if you're a part of any kind of a strong institutional religious construct, you should be changing and growing almost continuously. Bishop Neil C. Ellis is the one who always coins the phrase that anything that is connected to God biblically must grow. So if you're in any ways in contact with God, whether that be through whatever belief system you believe that that 
you know, if your God is one that is evolving and growing and is concerned about your life, then obviously then you should be learning and growing and evolving. But I think that the the strongest factor in our real growth and change and motivation and change is our relationships. Hmm. I think there's nothing that buttresses us, that pushes us, that motivates us, that breaks us more than human touch and human interaction. Uh, especially at an early age. We started out as a conversation talking about the, the experiences that we have in our youth that kind of affect our worldview and how we actually act now. And I think that couldn't be more true. So yeah, I believe that all the individuals are growing. All, the, all, all of us don't necessarily embrace growth the same way. All of us don't digest it and interpolate it, then send it back to the world the same way. And I, I think that's the really interesting thing is actually seeing how people can have a very, very similar experience, but that experience can take them on totally different trajectories and pathways. And, and so what are the variables that kind of impacted that? Was it that, you know, they had a, a really good roommate in college who was open with them and kind of talked to them? Was it that they had a spiritual experience or had a mentor or anything like that religiously, they kind of put them on a pathway toward, you know, a heightened consciousness. I think that that question is really the beauty of the human experience that, that, you know, just like chaos theory, we have all these wonderful things that can impact our lives that we can actually see that send our lives on a tremendous trajectory in so many different ways. And that we rob ourselves of the experience when we don't actually share those one with them. So yes, first of all, I do believe we grow. I pray to God that that we continue in our growth because I think the divisiveness state, uh, stifles growth and mm. it stifles critical thinking. So yeah, I, I do believe it. I have tremendous faith in it. And I'm praying as a nation and stuff like that, that collectively we're going to continue in those moves. Yeah. Is there any specific shifts for you that you want to talk about that said, you know, I, I, was this way at one point when I was at one point in my life, but now I'm this way. Is there any shift at all that, that you could say the Earl that was 15 years ago is very different than the Earl is today in this area? Yes. I think, I think that the primary one is I was in my prior marriage. I was divorced a couple of years ago. I was married to an incredible, incredible, a strong, phenomenal black woman who happened to suffer from paranoid schizophrenia. Mm. So I had, so in order for us to, to what I call to love her through health was the experience of understanding that there are some people that some people experience the world experience a circumstance and mm. based on their perception can drive their behavior incredibly. So that's when I got really, really interested, obviously, because I'm, I'm a caretaker for someone that I love. I'm really interested in just, you know, DSM-4, DSM-5. I, pro I know probably more about just mental diagnosis and stuff like that and, and the full spectrum from schizoaffective and otherwise than most people, probably more than I need to know. But in getting to know that, it really, I, I, I began to love, I don't know whether it was, I could say love or whether it was actually just, you know, what I needed to do, but have a real understanding of, of human cognitive behavior. Mm. You know, how do we, how do we interact with the world around us? And for me, I took that, I took those experiences, or I should say, I tried to take that experience as I'm still evolving in it. I take those experiences into my, my organizational management because I recognize that, that companies and organizations are really just the, the greatest resource we have is a human resource. And there's no such thing as a product without the, the, I see the people that are a part of it as, as the real widgets. So yep. recognizing that people, you're bringing all these different cognitive experiences together and then asking them to, to work as a, as a um, cohesive cohort isn't just, you know, painting by numbers. It's it, that people come to work with different experiences, with different motivations, with different values. Men come to work with a tremendous amount of affirmation of their maleness 
based on the work that they do and their successes. Women have their own reasons and rationales for coming to work and how and what they actually bring to work. And if we don't really recognize those, you can't build effective teams. Hmm. Um, you can't discipline everyone the exact same way as much as we would like to. You can't deal with everyone exactly the same way. So, so I think that's shaped me a lot professionally, uh, especially as of late. That's shaped me just interpersonally and understanding my son and work with my son and just some things and just and just my purview and really, really shaped me personally, just in my relational of understanding, you know, being self-reflective and understanding who I am as a person, which is a hard journey and understanding the things that I need as an individual. And in my relationship with Bob, what are, what is it, what is it that I need Bob to understand about me for us to have a really good relationship? Do I care enough that I want to know what are Bob's triggers? You know, that we that we can actually we have a great relationship up to this level. But most of us are like, yeah, but I don't venture into these areas. Those those areas right there, you know, that's where some things fall apart. You know, and I think that's um, I think that's what really shapes me and what I post and what I think and in the relationships I have and, and the people that I bring around me like you, Bob. I mean, I've always I love the things you post, but I love our conversations and your outlook and perspective and not, and your outlook and perspective, but also how you present it. You're not you're not cavalier with your wording. You're you're respectful with your wording, especially going around hard topics. And even this podcast that you're doing, taking on these aren't necessarily the easiest topics and, and really delving into, you know, human ethos and what makes us tick and all that. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, a huge driver. I think it's, for me, it's a huge driver. And I, I and I love it. I love what God is kind of doing with that for me. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I find I find understanding not just the uh, the sociological and, and even spiritual side, but really understanding, oh, we think there there's a there's a format and there's a there's a way that we think and there's a way that all humans interact and respond to things and the deeper that you get into that then you can begin to to take off uh, again more more and more of of our own personal biases to say oh that person wasn't being a jerk or they really don't hate me or they don't hate my tribe they're just scared or they're just you know doing the best they can with what they have to work with those are valuable lessons for sure so, so do you, so what, so Bob, what, and I'll probably kind of bear off because I've, I've seen, and, and from, from the things that you post in our conversations, how do you, it, it, I, I know you're a real big proponent of flexible thinking and that rigidity is kind of, you know, the most difficult thing to kind of move, but you're right. People have biases based on, and we can address the bias, but it's the fear that's behind it. That if we can really address that fear, then that's right. kind of what we really need to do. And, and I, I kind of see you even when you go through your, you know, some of the arguments that you make in posts and all that. And it's different. It's, it's, it's easy for me to do it from a varying perspective, but I see you also doing it with others who are your friends and those that are of mm -hmm. white culture and stuff like that. So I applaud you for that. But what is that experience like there? What is that what does that do for you inside of you? What kind of anxiety and how does that work for you? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, yeah, anxiety is a great word. I don't know if you, do you study or know anything about the Enneagram at all? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. So I'm an Enneagram seven, which right. means I have a very positive outlook and I'm always curious, but it also means that I'm really, really scared of dealing with difficult feelings and hard situations. And so my radar is always up, which results in, you know, a lot of anxiety. But but learning how to lean into that, I think my journey, to answer your question, is more of how, how can I lean into my shadow side? Not to get into Jungian psychology, but what is what is it about, you know, the things that I'm scared of or the things, the coping mechanisms that I've learned 
that really isn't the true version of me that I want people to see. And as I begin to lean into those and do the work, to coin a phrase, is how then do I, what does that look like interacting with other people? Well, vulnerability breeds vulnerability. And if you're going to do the work, then you're going to have to be vulnerable. If you're going to let people see who you really are and be who you truly are in the world, as you said, evolve and consciousness and whatever, then you're going to have to let them see your weaknesses. You're going to have to let them see all sides of you. And I think for me, that's the motivation for engaging with people, whether it's on this podcast or on social media is how do you not only show your side, your vulnerabilities, but encourage them to let their guard down. Meaning I understand what you're saying. Uh, I may not agree with it, but I cannot deny your experience. I believe you. I believe that's the way you feel. I believe that you believe this thing. I'm, I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to support it, but I'm not going to deny your lived experience. And I think if you can start there, then you begin to see the crack in people's vulnerability to say, oh, wait a second. He's not trying to win an argument. He's not binary in his thinking and he's not a zero sum game. I just want to hear what you think and feel and let's talk about it. And for me, the biggest win in uh, any of those conversations or those communications is if I can just get somebody, even if it's one person, to see things from a different perspective. And then I think if we all can do that with each other, if I can see things from a different perspective, I can get you to see things from a different perspective, not the binary view, not the either or black, white, Republican, Democrat, black, white, whatever it may be, but oh, there's a spectrum and a myriad of colors and options and perspectives. To me, that's the win. And that, and I, I guess I could say that's my, that's my life goal and, and mission and purpose is to human flourishing. That's how you get there in my perspective. That's, that's wow. That, I mean, you should, yeah, you can almost pre-record what you just said. And kind of <laughs> really, really can. And well, I, thank I, you for the interview, Earl. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, no, that, that's, man, that, that's rich because, because you said, you really said two things, Bob, your, your, your core, your core seven. And that is not really feeling comfortable wading into a confrontation, especially one that's going to push a level of vulnerability. But by nature, everything that you're trying to do pushes into that level, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's great for, it's great for us to sit here and, you know, interview and have discussions and stuff like that. But I think that most of us aren't real about what's actually happening on the, us on the inside to, to actually make that happen. And I think that I could have a whole, I, I would ask you a million questions about just, Hey, you know, how do you deal with that for that first level of anxiety and how do you kind of press past that? And how do you hold your, you know, feel like you're holding yourself together, pressing past that to that level of vulnerability. So, I mean, the, yeah. this and all that, that's, that's beautiful, man. Cause yeah, that's almost denying yourself, you know? Well, it, it's denying, I think that part of yourself that you learned how to cope, but it's not your true self, if that makes sense. Oh, that's And great. I think, because I think so many of us are walking around with this act and this armor on but we know when we curl up in bed at night or we're alone with that person that we love or whatever it may be we know that that's not who we really are we know that there's something deeper and more innocent and more pure that's longing to come through and the sad thing is i don't want to get to the end of my life 
and never share that with anyone or never be that for myself. That it only isn't, it's not, it's only not a, not kind to the world and to my relationships. It's really not kind to myself. It's a self denial. That's not a healthy self denial. It's an inhumane. It's the same thing as me um, saying to you as a black man, I don't believe you about race and I'm just going to ignore it and turn a blind eye and pretend that you're not grieving and that it doesn't hurt you. That's just as dehumanizing as me saying to myself as well. I'm not going to, I'm going to not going to trust my true vulnerable, who I really am. And I'm not going to share that with the world. I'm going to, I'm going to push that down. That's dehumanizing myself. It's the same dehumanizing. So that, that's, that's interesting because you know that most, I, I don't only speak for American, most of my American, most of us, most of us shape our identity around these constructs that we get from the outside. Like, yes. you know, men, you know, so we, men will, will men, if we're, if we're providing for our household, we have, you know, we had a good work job, a steel mill and everything else. That's our construct. And we'll lay down with that in comfort. And we never go deeper to examine, hey, is this really us? Is it, you know, we, you know, so for you to do that, I almost want to, yeah, that, that's an unusual thing. That's an unusual thing because most people will stay at the first level and say that we go through down our checklist of, you know, did I do this today? Did I provide for my family? Did I not cheat? Am I, am I doing this? Am I a good person? Did I help that person on the street? And if I did that, if I went down that checklist, then I can lay my head down in comfort and knowing that I'm a good person with never really examining 90% that has absolutely nothing to do with us. It has to do with that you know, outside construct. Yeah. Um, so. And at, at the same time, you know, that same person would say, and maybe they never told anyone, you know, I always wanted to be an artist. I always wanted to paint for a living. I always wanted to write books. That's my soul's desire. And see, that's their true selves. That's longing to come out, but yet they were told you have to check these boxes in order to be a productive or a good boy or a good provider or a good wife, whatever it may be, you know, and I think that's, that's what I really want people to understand is you can do that. You can reveal that and you can experience that. You don't have to be something that you don't really believe is your true heart's desire. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's in, I think, and I, I think that's a bit of our cultural evolution as a country too now, because this new generation that's coming forth is, is recognizing its voice, maybe not necessarily its power, but its voice. So we're seeing the LGBT community kind of exercise itself and kind of exercise political will and talk about it as a community. Me Too was a strong, strong, incredible movement where women who have just silenced their voice for years right. and now are, you know, are embracing their authentic voice there. And, and it's, I think that part of the intercultural divide, divisions that we actually see are just you know, kind of this old guard of, of, of male pa patriarchy, and that has to do with black, white, or otherwise. And then yes. how do we deal with this new generation that's actually coming up that that's expressing his voice in a way, in a way that we would have seen as disrespectful probably when you and I were growing up and otherwise. Right. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful move, but it, it's a controversial one, you know? Well, birth pains, I've heard people say birth pains are always painful and messy. And maybe we're in that time where it's going to be that way for a while. But I think the what comes after will be, like we are talking earlier, a, a new consciousness, a growth, a healing, all those things that, that are difficult uh, when they happen. But we look back, you know, here we are 
X amount of years after so many of those in our society, not only as humans, but as Americans. And, and we've seen those difficult times and we you know, certainly would not want to go back to any of that, but, but we made it through. And I think we're in the middle of another one of those as well. Very cool. Well, I'm going to share in your optimism there, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, that's all we got, right? Uh, <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> Earl, thank you so much. This has been a great discussion. Is there any place or anything that people can, if they want to get a hold of you, learn more about what you do on a daily basis, get involved, anything like that? Social media, they could just Google your name. Yeah, Earl Hamilton, sure. Absolutely. Yes. Uh -huh. Okay. Good. Well, Earl, thank you. And we'll, we'll do it again really soon. Bob, this has been great, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye.